What is the greatest need in the world? That question gets answered different ways even among Bible-believing Christians. So, for example, if you were to attend the average Christian, Christian college or university today, they would tell you that perhaps, and with some degree of frequency, that the greatest need in the world is what's called social justice. That is that many peoples and individuals have suffered horrifically at the hands of other peoples and individuals, and there needs to be some kind of reconciliation or some way of making up for the harms that have been done in the past. If you were to go to many of the churches here in central Illinois, you would hear quite a bit of a different message. You would hear that the greatest need in the world is perhaps a return to absolutes, or even down to some details like the lowering of taxes and the advancement of the free market, or the recovery of the rights of the unborn, or the recovery of rights of parents. Neither of those two messages is the greatest need in the world. The greatest need in the world is not, as many politicians want to put it, finding a solution for global climate change. Nor is the greatest need in the world winning the fight against those who think that giving governments more money will solve global climate change. That is not the greatest need in the world. What is the greatest need in the world? I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, and we will discover the greatest need in the world met by the greatest news in the world. The greatest need in the world met by the greatest news in the world. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture this morning? We typically do that. We don't do it every Sunday, but we typically do stand for the reading of God's Word just as a way of saying, God, we're listening. We're paying attention to your Word. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Please have a seat. The real gospel is important for everyone, including those in the church. Now, Paul begins this section after having gone through chapters 12 to 14, which is about spiritual gifts and how they are to operate in the church, he now comes and he's bringing his letter in for a landing, and he takes 58 verses to come in for a landing. He's kind of like me in that way. Takes a long time to get to the end when he says, now we're almost at the end. You know, we'll be four weeks at least here in chapter 15. But What he's going to do as he comes to the end of his epistle is talk about the things of greatest importance. And they aren't things about spiritual gifts or about how they are to operate in the church. He's going to talk about the greatest thing in the world, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important for everyone, including those in the church. Why? Look at how he begins verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, we need reminding of the gospel. The gospel is not something that, you know, and you've heard this before, and it's not a bad phrase. Have you ever heard the phrase, the plan of salvation? You've heard, heard that phrase? It's, it's, a, it's a way of describing how we who are broken, rebel, sinners, dead in our sins, are made alive by putting our faith in what Jesus did at the cross to forgive us of our sins. But do you know that that phrase can cause us not to remind ourselves of the gospel? We think, okay, I've got that taken care of, and now it's on to other things that are more important or as important or more relevant And that's why we need to be reminded of the gospel because it isn't just the beginning thing. The gospel isn't just the beginning thing. The gospel is the only thing. It's the focus and the center of everything we are and we are being or we ever will be. And Paul is going to point this out in these 11 verses. And he wants to remind them Everybody in the church, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preach to you. Now, the gospel has a give and take to it. The word gospel just means uh, good news, and the gospel has a give to it. He says that I preached to you. Now, when you think of the word preach, what do you think of? You might think of someone standing in front of a pulpit in church and That is part of preaching, but the word doesn't mean just what a pastor does on a Sunday morning in worship services. This word preach means a person who heralds or announces 
It's any and every believer who is communicating to a hurting, broken world. It's you and me in our everyday relationships where we would open our mouth to speak the truth about God. And so he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I proclaimed to you. It has a give to it. We preach it. We proclaim it. In fact, Paul repeats that phrase just in the first two verses. Do you see it? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. It has a give to it. The gospel means uh, the good news needs to be given out. It also has a take to it, doesn't it? There are people who proclaim it and announce it and share it, and then the gospel has a take. We receive it. Do you see that in verse 1? This gospel which you received. By receiving, Paul means that you heard it, you understood it, and you embraced it by faith. You believed in it. Receive doesn't just mean, well, yeah, I understood it. It means that it became part of you. That's the past action. You received it. Notice the present results then. Past, you received it. It says, in which you stand. You have taken your stand. You've taken this good news about Jesus and you are standing in it. You're saying, this is my ground by which I will be right with God. There's nothing else. I'm going to trust what Jesus has done for me to forgive me of my sin. You've taken your stand in it. Past action, you received it. Present results, you've taken your stand. Notice the future benefits. Verse 2, by which you are being saved. We're being saved by this gospel. Now, notice this being saved means that it's not just back when you trusted Jesus to forgive you of your sin, but you are continuing to believe this gospel and it is shaping you and changing you to become more like Jesus. The future benefits you're being saved that leads to what the Bible calls the glorification of salvation, that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So this gospel takes us all the way from the very moment we trust Christ all the way to glory. We are being saved by the gospel. But there can't be any empty belief. You see that in verse 2? There are people who think that they're believing in the gospel. There is such a thing, however, as a false profession, something that is not genuine. Well, how do we know whether our faith is genuine or not? Look at verse 2, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. That is, true faith holds fast to the gospel. You keep trusting Jesus. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? 
John says it this way in 2 John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the real gospel is important for everyone, including those in the church. It's not just something that saves you from hell and for heaven, although it does do that. It is something that is our life from that moment on all the way through our life and even into glory, into eternity. The gospel will be our ground. It's important for everyone. Well, if that's true, if the gospel is important for everyone, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I'm telling you, friends, today, that word gospel is being redefined by literally everyone within evangelicalism. An important question to ask anybody is, what is the gospel? Now, there are things that are implications of the gospel. I grant that. And they ought to be embraced and thought of, you know, whether it's things like racial reconciliation or the rights of the unborn. There's implications. But those aren't the gospel. What is the gospel? Look at verse uh, 3. Paul says there's some misconceptions about what the gospel is. You know, the implications of the gospel, like racial reconciliation or no abusing of people or caring for the poor or doing good deeds or painting an orphanage or free markets or less mark government and more personal charity or the outlawing of abortion and euthanasia, those are implications of the gospel. They aren't the gospel. The gospel, look at verse 3, is of first importance, first as in priority, I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel is not man-made, it's God-given. Do you see, Paul didn't make it up. He says, what I also received. He received it by revelation from God. Uh, Liberal scholars will say that Paul preached the resurrection because he made it up, and then later on, followers of Paul invented the letters of the New Testament, particularly the Pauline epistles, in order to keep this myth going. Do you see how Satan wants to take away the seed of the Word of God and cause doubt and cause people to back away from the very thing that is of first importance? Paul says, I didn't didn't make this up. I received it from God. It's not man-made. It's God-given. Paul is simply delivering what he has received. End of verse 3. First part of the gospel. That Christ. Let's just stop right there. We run over words and we don't even know what they mean. Christ. Christ. What the word Christ means? It means Messiah, deliverer, the king. 
You see, the entire Old Testament is wrapped up in that word Christ, because in the whole picture of the Old Testament, what's happening is various figures are being brought to the stage of human history, and each one is thought as, well, maybe that's the person that saves the human race. Maybe that's the person that brings peace on earth. Maybe that person makes right everything that's gone wrong. And so Adam trots across the stage, failure. Abraham, failure. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, failure, failure, failure. Maybe when we get a real king, David, failure. All of the kings of David, uh, the sons of David that are kings of Judea, failure, 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 failure. They can't bring in the kingdom of God. You know why? Because they aren't God. And there's a prediction in the Old Testament somebody's coming, friends. Somebody's coming. And he'll be the Messiah. He'll be the rightful king because he is not just a human. He's God come in the flesh. And that's the person who comes. And he's called the Christ, the Messiah. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ... Now, here's a word that you wouldn't expect to come from the rightful king of the universe, that Christ died. This God-man, this guy who is the rightful king of the universe, died. It implies a penalty, a payment, and we see that in the very next three words. Christ died. Why? For our sins. He died in order to achieve a forgiveness that we could never earn or deserve. He made it an atonement. He atoned for the wrath of God for our sin by taking the punishment that we deserved. He took our place. The punishment that we deserved was laid on Him. Christ died for our sins. That's good news because none of us could pay for it. Every one of us falls short. No one can say when they stand before God and He says, why should I let you in? No one can be able to say, well, I've been a pretty good person. No one will be able to say, well, you know, my good things outweigh my bad ones. No one will be able to say, well, you know, my family, we were all church-going people all the way back to my great-great-great-great-grandma. No one will be able to say, you know, I think you're just kind of a good guy who's going to let everybody in. None of those things will matter. The only ground of our hope for eternity is this phrase, the king died for my sin. Notice it says there in verse 3, in accordance with the Scriptures. 
According to the scriptures taken as a whole, the whole message of the Bible is about a king who alone can build the kingdom of God, and people do all sorts of kingdom building, but they all fail miserably. Jesus comes in the fulfillment of the scriptures that the rightful king will come and defeat sin and death. He will make a community of worshipers. He'll establish his forever kingdom. From Genesis 3.15, which says uh, this prediction that uh, you will smash his Satan's head and he will bruise your heel to the point of the Passover in Exodus where the Passover lamb covers over the sin and Jesus dies at the Passover to the sacrifices of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace was laid on him and by his wounds we are healed We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that, this is the first part was that Christ died for our sins. Second part, that he was buried A dead corpse of the God-man was a reality. Jesus Christ was dead. Now, this does not mean that He was non-existent any more than any of us fail to exist after we die. Did you know that after you die, you will continue to exist for all eternity? But what it does mean when it says that the God-man died, it means that his body was separated from his spirit, and Jesus Christ went to the place of the human dead. He is one with us, even in the grim fulfillment of the promise God made to Adam and Eve in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And since that time, one out of one of all of us dies, and Jesus, the King, paid for our sin, and He died and was buried. But praise the Lord for the end of verse (laughs) 4. He was raised on the third day. He's been raised. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about bodily resurrection in the coming weeks, but notice He's raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. Well, what Scriptures? Well, how about Psalm 16? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus is raised from the dead to be the rightful king and ruler. Or Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What does that mean? Jesus didn't have any children. 
not biological children. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. What does it mean? It means that when Jesus dies and he's risen from the dead, he will see his offspring, which is those who believe and follow him are the sons of Jesus, sons and daughters of the King. Out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What a praise. So, this is the gospel. Christ, rightful King, died for our sins in our place, taking our punishment. He was buried. The God-man is one with us in death. And then he was raised again from the dead, all in accordance with the promises of Scripture. <clears throat> how is this gospel, how is this good news verified as true? How do we know it's true? It seems really good, doesn't it? How can we know it's true? Well, the first way we know is the repeated phrase in accordance with the Scriptures, the testimony of the Word of God from Genesis all the way through to this point here in 1 Corinthians and then beyond. We see on its pages the verification of Jesus, who He is, what He's done, what He's going to do. That's the whole theme of the Bible, that Jesus is the rightful King, and He's, he's raising up a kingdom for Himself. So that's one way we know that the gospel's true is by, by Scripture. But Paul goes on to say there's another way. Do you see it there in verse 5? There's eyewitness testimony. First, he appeared to Cephas. This is the, another na name for the apostle Peter, who was a person who in the gospels, you'll see he was kind of the first one to speak up, sometimes good, most of the time bad, right? But God showed up. Jesus showed up and appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to, verse 5, the twelve. And this phrase, the twelve, you might want to put in quotes because obviously it doesn't include Judas who betrayed him and then committed suicide. This appearance to the, the word the twelve, this phrase the twelve, is a title now that's given to a special group of people. They're called the twelve even though they're not twelve in number. And then to 500, and it says brothers, but the word can mean brothers and sisters at one time, so I think it's probably all-inclusive there. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. Now, you could believe, if you think about hallucinations, you could perhaps believe that one person had a hallucination that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You may even be able to believe that these people termed the twelve could have a collective hallucination, the idea that they're so longing for it and they believe it so much that they make it happen. By the way, the Gospels record that they weren't believing it. They were, they were more shocked than anybody, okay? So that's one area that you just look at and go, yeah, these skeptics are, they're, they're trying too hard. <laughs> but 500? 500 people at one time? And then Paul goes on to say, you know, if you're really wanting to verify this at the time that he's writing, most of these folks are still alive, and you could go talk to them if you want to. Now, some of them have died, 
but most of them are still alive and you could check it out. And then he says, James, he appeared to James. This James is not one of the 12 disciples. There were two, deci- two of the 12 disciples that were named James. This is another James, okay? The, the name James in uh, the Old Testament was the name Jacob, so it's a pretty common name, okay? And uh, this James here is the half-brother of Jesus, Mary's son, and he ended up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The, the very beginning church, he was the leader of that church. Now, the reason why that's remarkable is that in John chapter 7, we read that the brothers of Jesus come to Jesus and they go, you know, why don't you leave here and go to Judea and do some fancy stuff there? And they're making fun of Jesus. The reason why in John 7, 5, we read, for not even his brothers believed in him. Something changed. This half-brother of Jesus, who at one point was mocking Jesus and saying, I don't believe anything you say, which is more common out of brothers, right? (laughs) Just go do some fancy stuff in Judea if you're such a fancy-schmancy guy, right? And, And now... This guy ends up being the leader of the church in Jerusalem and becomes a martyr for the Christian faith. This is transformational eyewitness testimony. What was it that changed James? He saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. Then it goes on to say, all of the apostles, all the apostles, all the ones that have been sent out by God as apostles, Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, we've got boys and girls here in our service that are cruising with Paul. Pay attention to what I'm about to say here, because in your lesson today, you were studying this very event that Paul is referring to. You were studying how Paul was on the road to Damascus, and he was tr- going to go kill Christians. And as he's going to kill Christians, all of a sudden there's this blinding light from heaven. And Paul says this. He goes, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Which has got to be one of the strangest questions you could ever ask, right? He knows who it is, but he's asking who it is. You know why? Because he's got an inkling who it is. Who are you? He knows it's God. He knows it's God, but he doesn't know the specifics. Who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back from heaven, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Paul says, last of all, Jesus appeared also to me, I who am the least of the apostles. He says as to one abnormally or untimely born. The word that's translated there, untimely born, means freakish. It's translated freakish. It could be translated as miscarriage or even an abortion. Paul's feeling like, I am absolutely worthless and nothing, and Jesus showed up to me. 
Now, <clears throat> that's how the gospel's verified is true. This string of eyewitnesses and the powerful demonstration of how it fulfills Scripture. So we come to the last little section here this morning, and we realize whoever it is that's proclaiming the gospel, whoever's sharing it, whoever is preaching it, that's not as important as what is proclaimed. The one who is communicating is not as important as what is being communicated. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy of the name because I persecuted the church. But the grace of God, verse 10, the grace of God made it so. By the grace of God, I am what I am, a proclaimer of this good news. And that's true for every one of us, brothers and sisters, who are believers in Jesus. It's the grace of God that makes us what we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that grace, he says, toward me was not in vain. In fact, Paul goes on to say here that the, it is the result of, of, of God's grace that he worked harder, more successfully than any of them. It's not him working harder, it was the grace of God with him. And we sang that song earlier, didn't we? Yet not I, but Christ in me, it's a reference to Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he's repeating this same idea here. It's not about me proclaiming. It's about what is being proclaimed. This glorious gospel is what matters. Whether it's I you see there in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, whoever it is, so we proclaim. It's what we proclaim. And so you Corinthians believed. What matters is that the gospel is proclaimed and that it is believed. This morning, there's a temptation as we face the challenging days in our era, to think only in terms of the disenchantments of our own generations. And different generations have different enchantment, uh, disenchantments, but all of us are disenchanted. And we tend to gather around ourselves people who think like we do, and we go, well, yeah, this was stupid LGBT thing. And then the other people say, well, and then this, this fact that there's such racial uh, discrimination. And we want to make those things the gospel? No, those are maybe implications, but they are not the gospel, friends. The greatest need in the world is met by the greatest news in the world. People are lost and they need a Savior. And Jesus Christ has come to die and pay for sin. He was buried and He rose again from the dead. And you might say, well, I'm not a very good person who speaks about those kinds of things. <clears throat> well, I've noticed that everybody speaks about things that they're passionate about. No matter how introverted or extroverted, everybody speaks about what they're passionate about. 
And let me ask you a penetrating question as you review the things that you talk about through a week <clears throat> and the things that you express the most passion over, is it the gospel? You might say, well, I don't know enough, or I don't know all the answers to the questions that might be, it doesn't, not even, not even an issue. The issue is not who preaches or how much they know, it's what's proclaimed. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures. George Whitfield made this insightful comment, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no one can preach a better gospel. There's nothing better than this. You see, we want to think as Christians, that's the starting point, and then everything else, we get to talk about all kinds of, all kinds of issues, and by the way, it's okay to talk about other issues. Paul talked in chapters 12 to 14 about issues related to spiritual gifts and how the church should function, but when he's coming in for a landing, when he's going to talk about this is the greatest thing for the greatest need, it's the gospel. And the gospel isn't just a thing, it's not just the beginning thing, it's the thing for you and I who know and love Jesus. It's everything. It's everything for us. I love how Charles Spurgeon spent his whole life trying to argue this. <clears throat> Literally, he spent his whole life trying to argue that the gospel was to be our theme always and ever. He said, for example, there's no substance without the gospel. He says a sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. He said there's no true proclamation of the gospel without, there's no true preaching without the gospel. He says, better leave the pulpit out altogether if you can preach a sermon without mentioning Christ and the gospel. There's no life without the gospel, no real life. Spurgeon says, somebody came to him and said, you're always on one string. You're just playing one note. And he says, I'd come and hear you more <clears throat> if I heard you preach a different sermon. Spurgeon says, well, he'll never come while this tongue moves. <laughs> For a sermon without Christ, it's a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well that mocks the traveler, a tree twice dead, plucked up by the root, a sky without a sun, a night without a star. That's a message without the gospel. There's no life without it. There's no nourishment without the gospel. Paul says, or Spurgeon says, I'd rather go to a bare table and eat from a wooden porger that would appease my appetite than go to a well-spread table where there was nothing to eat. And I feel that someday we will look back and think that so many of the things that pass for Christianity in our own age were very well fancy schmancy tables on which there was nothing of substance to eat. There's no Holy Spirit without the gospel. The Spirit of God bears no witness to Christless sermons, Spurgeon says. Leave Jesus out of your preaching and the Holy Spirit will never come upon you. Why should he? He came to testify of Christ. There's no power without the gospel. Where there's nothing of Christ, there's nothing of savor. 
You've taken the milk from children. There's no good news without this good news. Dear friends, there are so many things that are capturing our fancy and our attention. And we are doing a uh, disservice to ourselves and to others when we feed that infinite loop of just reinforcing our own belief systems about us. When a world is dying without Christ, and when we ourselves are starving because we do not feed ourselves daily on the joy that is found in knowing Christ. Let's pray. Now, I want to give you a moment here to think about your own life. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? If you have not, I want to give you an opportunity to trust Him. Simply say in your heart to God, God, I know you made the world perfectly. I know that sin entered into the world and so everything got ruined. Death came through sin, brokenness, ruin. And I'm part of that ruin. I am a sinner. I have rebelled against you. I don't walk in your ways. But I know you love me because you sent Jesus, the God-man, to come to earth as the king. And that king, King Jesus, died to pay for my sins. I trust him right now to forgive me of my sins. He was buried. He took the place of the dead and he was raised from the dead and so I know he will give me life when I call out to him and I do that right now. I call out to you, Jesus, save me and give me your eternal life. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord that way will be saved. And now, Lord, we pray for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that none of us would have a phony or a false belief, but that it would be genuine, demonstrated by our walking with you, and help us not to get so fascinated by the fancy baubles of this life that we ignore the gospel first and middle and end of our lives. It's the ground of our being. And Lord, may we never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would say that the gospel is the greatest thing in our lives, the greatest need in the world, met by the greatest news in the world. In Jesus' name.